This program was recorded live on December 2nd, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. Yes, he is, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We are live, we're here, and we've got a great show for you today. If you want to participate, you can. Call us on the phone, get us on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting topics. And today we've got one of the world's highest flying doctors, Dr. Michael Barrett, back from 200 days in space aboard the International Space Station, including a spacewalk. Hey, beam me up, Scotty. That was a good one, Michael. Yes. A flight surgeon for NASA before this opportunity, he was actually aboard as a flight engineer, if you can believe it. And if you've got a question for Dr. Barrett, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. And so what else is on our minds today? How about the practice of physicians bending entry guidelines for a clinical study? If you felt an experimental treatment would benefit your patient, would you alter medical records to get your patient into a trial? Good question. And how about the recent government recommendation about delaying routine breast cancer mammogram guidelines? It's everywhere. While the HHS secretary says CMS will not be changing its mammogram coverage policy, has the damage already been done to a decades-long effort to start routine screenings at age 40? A very controversial issue. We'll talk about it on this week's ReachMD Forum. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. But first, our regular feature, ReachMD's That's News to Me, where we review curious news headlines from the world of medicine and science. And this is a great one. So we all know that heart disease from atherosclerosis is a relatively new development in society from modern lifestyles. Too much fried, fried fast food, smoking, couch potato inactivity, the works, right? Absolutely. Not so much. It turns out that a recent examination of mummified bodies reveals that Ancient Egyptians suffered from cardiovascular disease as well. What do you think of this that? This is really interesting. This was a study actually published in JAMA, my favorite journal. 20 mummies received full-body CT scans. 16 had hearts or arteries preserved enough to study because, you know, they used to take the hearts out and put them in little jars. And of those, though, nine had evidence of blockage from atherosclerosis, hmm. including seven of the eight who survived past the age of 45. <laughs> <laughs> and it was both sexes, very evenly. Hmm. Now, the mummies came from the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo, and they ranged from 2,000 to 3,500 years of age, which spans 18 generations or multiple dynasties, so it wasn't just one family with heart disease. Yeah, so spanning a lot of, lot of generations. I, <laughs> I can't resist. I mean, maybe the take-home here is that the curse of the mummy, as we all know it, is really heart disease. Yeah, or, Can I get a ba-bum-bum-ching? No, or or <laughs> how, about, how about when this brings a new meaning to family history when you say, me mummy had a history of heart disease. <laughs> all right, what's the real take home? <laughs> well, I, obviously, you know, it, it indicates, at least to the authors, that heart disease may not be a modern development. And I think that's especially pertinent when we think about uh, what we call the hypertension paradox. You know, we are looking at better treatments over time, but increasing hypertension prevalence um, alongside it. And we like to attribute increased obesity, increased salt intake, increased age of the population. And lo and behold, maybe it was the same factors that went into the upper castes of the ancient Egyptians at the time. Well, you know, looking at the mummies, have you ever seen them? They really weren't obese. These, these were small, slight people. And I think it has a lot to do with their lifestyle, which says something about heart disease in our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the upper classes would eat better. They would eat meat. Uh, we have no evidence what happened to the lower classes, but it does say something about lifestyle and heart disease. And 
I, maybe in America, we need to be looking more toward our lifestyle. Well, one thing that really separated them was having less activity. I mean, being of the pharaoh and the pharaoh's order and that level, um, you were not expected to do all that much, uh, maybe preside over decisions. But inactivity, just like our couch potato uh, lifestyle now, might be might be handy. I saw the Ten Commandments. I know how they behave. You know they how all it just went down. sat around and played games, exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Well, with but uh, they look pretty healthy. They did look pretty healthy, and um, with heart disease risk factors in mind, I think we should hit our pop quiz question for the week. And that is, is smoking still on the decline here in the U.S.? Now, we all know that there have been major public health efforts to extinguish cigarettes and other forms of smoking. So consider this question. Have U.S. smoking rates declined, leveled, or increased since 1998? And think it over because it might be a trick question. We we have lots of trick questions today. We are never (laughs) on the level. We're always tricking people. And we'll have the answer at the end of the show. Yes, and there'll be a prize for whoever gets the answer correct hearty handshake. Okay, now a really tough issue that more and more doctors are facing, and it's also the subject of this week's ReachMD poll. So let's say you find out about an investigational drug or treatment in trials that might show some promise for one of your patients. You could enroll him or her, but that doesn't, the, the patient doesn't quite meet the criteria for the trial. Are there any circumstances under which you would you'd bend the admission criteria, or lie, frankly, uh, bend the criteria of a, of a clinical trial for a patient? And we'd like for you to log on to ReachMD.com slash poll later to go directly to the poll homepage. Just cast your ballot and then see what your peers think. But in the meantime, here are some things to consider. I, I love this topic. I think it's really interesting because, you know, we all want that miracle cure. Mm-hmm. And we all want it for our patients. And, and when we hear about something hopeful out there, but actually, how often does that happen in trials? Most of the trials I know about don't produce these miracle cures. Most don't. And of course, we have to look at it differently now <laughs> that now, we're thinking now about these this, lines. This is really interesting to me. <laughs> Investigators from four institutions surveyed over 700 clinicians involved in trials and found that 90% of respondents, 90% would ignore the entry guidelines for a study if they felt it would benefit their patient. And greater than 60% believed researchers should deviate from study rules if it helped patient care. I mean, those stats are, are crazy when you look at them, but are you offhand surprised? I mean, we've all been in context of some one sort or another, either with colleagues or ourselves, uh, with being part of or involved in clinical trials. Um, does that kind of figure shock you? No, because I think we bend the rules everywhere. We're always bending the rules or, or, or writing medication differently or doing things to help our patients. I think doctors have their patients right out in front of them, and that's their prime goal, exactly. taking care of these people, not, not research protocols. Yeah. But But on the other hand, you know, is it right? We have to wonder about that. I mean, we're looking at a conflict of ethics here. We're looking at the study conduct ethics, and we're also looking at the doctor-patientship relationship, which has its own set of uh, ethics and ethical standards. When you're looking right at somebody who needs your help, then you might have something that could potentially help. I mean, if we throw people into clinical trials who don't belong there, are we going to screw up the numbers? Are we going to? Yes. Yeah, we are. And are we going to have side effects showing up that, that, that really aren't there because we put patients into these trials? I mean, how much can we really believe clini- clinical trials now? It puts everything into question, especially when we know that this is probably, we don't have any figures on it other than just what survey respondents would do or what they might agree with. But you got to wonder how much of our data that was inconclusive or 
not very helpful, uh, actually might have been more so. Right. Now, the article did point something out, that this, there was a doctor in a story about a patient who had liver cancer, and he was able to get the patient the medication on a compassionate basis outside of the trial. So there are other things you can do, but I think we need to think really hard about how honest and truthful we're being here and what we're really doing to these clinical trial data if we throw patients in there. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's, uh, we have to look for those alternatives. So what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us at ReachMD.com slash poll, where you can vote on the ReachMD poll. And now we'd like to welcome our guest for this week. He's a physician with expertise in space medicine, which is a major understatement for someone who recently came back from 200 days aboard the International Space Station. And uh, beam me up, Scotty. Dr. Michael Barrett, are you there? <laughs> I'm here. I have you loud and clear. How me? Oh, Michael, it sounds like you're right in the studio. You're a physician, a flight surgeon, and now a spacewalker. And even more important, now you're on our show, which tops everything. <laughs> but we shouldn't, we shouldn't was, hold back and say that, right. you know, you, as well, we should tell the audience that, if I'm not mistaken, you were the senior editor for the textbook Principles of Clinical Medicine for Space Flight. That had to That's come in correct. handy for your recent mission, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Uh, it's actually a, a fulfillment of a dream for many reasons, uh, not the least of which is to go through the adaptation process myself that I've been researching and writing about for so many years has uh, just been a wonderful experience. It's almost like a physician having a disease that makes them more compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, it wasn't that unpleasant a disease to have, actually. But, uh... <laughs> well, all right. Well, listen, we see that you trained in internal medicine before pursuing your specialty training in space medicine. So That's was right. there any point in your, in your training or your residency that, that steered you in that direction, or does it go back further? Did you wake up one day and say, I'm going into space medicine? I said uh, that well, about dermatology, so... <laughs> well, it's a great question. I, you know, I think the one way you can characterize astronauts is that uh, we all love a whole bunch of diverse things so much that uh, you kind of find a, folks, a bunch of folks uh, who are fairly intelligent but in career crisis for much of their life because uh, it's hard to settle on one thing. Uh, but I was uh, nurturing a, an interest in space medicine quite a uh, ways before uh, even uh, medical school. And uh, internal medicine seemed a logical choice because I wanted to learn pathophysiology well before starting to learn the physiology of space medicine. And uh, in general, that served me well throughout this career. Hmm. That must have really uh, set you apart from your colleagues as well. I mean, it's a great thing to start, at a, <laughs> say, at a cocktail uh, dinner or with uh, friends when you're in residency to say, well, you know, I'm thinking of translating this into space medicine. That cannot have been too common uh, with a number of your trainees. Well, let's say I was in a very small niche, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, trained at uh, Northwestern University for medical school and, uh, and for internal medicine. And uh, the training there was, was very good and, and, like I say, prepared me very well. Well, let's talk about that really quickly. I mean, w w when we're talking about space medicine, does that technically draw from every medical background? Or were there some specialties that you thought might better prepare physicians for an astronautic career? And I asked that before. Well, I, and I know a lot of guys who were spaced out in medical school, so they, they, they might have been thinking about it too. <laughs> yeah, there's many ways to experience zero gravity. Um, I, I think, uh, in general, internal medicine provides a very good pathophysiologic background, but there is, of course, uh, the specialty of aerospace medicine. And uh, the typical aerospace medicine uh, graduate is clinically boarded in another specialty before going into aerospace. And so you have a few uh, people out there who, will du who are dual boarded in aerospace and internal medicine or ER medicine, uh, even uh, obstetrics and gynecology. And the, uh, the dual approach, I think, is, is really the best uh, preparation for a career like this, either as a flight surgeon or a, a, a physician astronaut. 
Okay, by the way, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. And we are having the pleasure of talking with astronaut, flight engineer, spacewalker, and our radio star, Dr. Michael Barrett. (laughs) Michael, let me ask you a question. It it looks like there were several different agencies from around the world represented in the crew on this space station. And you yourself traveled aboard a Russian craft. So how how does this influence your views on the traditionally nationally-centered occupation of space flight, space travel? Well, I think uh, if there was a uh, national centrism on spaceflight, I think that's currently in the past. Uh, we The predominant program right now is, of course, the International Space Station, and uh, we have several partners. It's a bilingual space station at the very least. Uh, English and Russian are the operative languages up there, and there's a smattering of everything else. And along with that goes the cultural norms and expectations of all of those partner agencies. And uh, what we represent as a crew on board is the pointy end of a very long spear. Uh, Whatever you see on board uh, is reflected a hundred and even thousands fold on the ground of all the specialties from uh, specialists from these other countries also having to come together and work together. And it's really broken down a lot of walls and uh, led to, I think, a a tremendous uh, cultural exchange of ideas. And obviously, we're able to do this uh, successfully. The program works. It's not the most efficient way to build or operate a space station, uh, but it works uh, surprisingly well. And I think the benefits of it uh, are a lot of international and cultural understanding that uh, we didn't expect. Be a nice model for the planet, wouldn't it be? We think so. (laughs) Now, when you spend time on board, um, you you probably had about 84,000 active roles to play daily. Did you have any clinical responsibilities for the crew? Absolutely. Uh, I uh, was the chief medical officer on board, or the crew medical officer on board, and and I can say chief because there were two MDs on board. And uh, the way Dr. Thursk and myself uh, split it up uh, after he arrived, which was six weeks after I did, is that uh, I would be kind of the lead medical officer until I left, and he would take over that role. Uh, We definitely have a a background incidence of uh, events that happen in zero gravity, and as you might guess, foreign bodies in the eye uh, happen occasionally. Uh, nothing settles out up there, so if you uh, run into something that's in the atmosphere, there's a good chance you might uh, get it in your eye. So we had a few of those events. We had uh, some of the basic uh, aches and pains that go along with zero gravity, low back pain, sometimes headaches, uh, space motion sickness, etc. So there, there are quite a few little things that I guess you could classify as occupational medical items associated with spaceflight. Any medical emergencies that, uh, that occurred during the time, or was it relatively safe? None for us. Uh, we, we haven't had any major emergencies per se in flight. Uh, we are ready to do so. We have uh, first uh, round advanced life support capabilities up there. We have a, an auto defibrillator up there. We have a respiratory support pack with a gas-powered ventilator. And uh, we would go with the philosophy of, of stabilizing and, and hopefully... Uh, keeping on orbit if we could, or uh, stabilizing and transporting if we needed to. So we've thought those things through. We're ready to implement them, but fortunately, we've never had to. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering, you know, with all these uh, recurrent chronic issues that might have uh, happened, you know, foreign bodies, back pain, I mean, how did you address these or even try to manage these in a zero-G environment? That must have been very challenging. (laughs) 
Well, everything's a little different. The, the biggest thing is just managing stuff in zero-G. Anything you put down floats away. and <laughs> So everything, including our medical kits, uh, has to be Velcroed down or bungeed down or some way restrained. And uh, it's just something you learn to do up there. It, it I think, takes uh, several weeks to get really adapted to zero gravity. But you actually learn to operate fairly proficiently, and, and some things are easier. Uh, I did physical exams on my crewmates periodically, and, you know, you don't have to have them roll over or, or uh, do anything. You could turn them upside down and, and uh, look at the back of their throat, look at the top of their throat, and turn them backside up and roll them around. And it's actually uh, pretty handy in zero-G sometimes. <laughs> well, can you? what about your, your personal self? Can you tell us what the personal physiological changes you felt in zero gravity? I mean... Well, it's a great question. There, there is a, a standard um, profile that we expect everyone to go through, and I pretty much went through that. And uh, it starts as soon as you uh, arrive in zero gravity. Uh, you experience a thoracic fluid shift, and uh, symptomatically that's manifested by some congestion, head fullness. Uh, you also experience uh, some headaches and loss of appetite that might go along with mild symptoms of space motion sickness. Uh, I had those in a, in a mild fashion, and some people have frank emesis and, and can be a little bit incapacitated for a couple of days. I was fortunate to escape that. Uh, your balance uh, kind of goes by the wayside because your vestibular system is kind of uh, gravicentric as well. Mm. And as soon as the engines cut off, I had the distinct feeling that I was hanging upside down. And uh, all these happened within the first several minutes to hours of arriving in flight. Uh, after that, uh, you essentially are, are getting used to flying in zero gravity and mass handling in zero gravity and uh, developing new proprioceptive uh, circuits. Um, back pain tends to come over the first couple of days and then goes away over several days. And some of the facial fullness symptoms tend to resolve over a period of about a week and a half. And, and these are symptomatic things that I'm mentioning uh, to you. But there's a lot of things happening that don't breach the, the clinical threshold, uh, which are quite interesting as well. Plasma volume decreases by about 15 percent. RBC mass decreases by about 10 percent. Uh, lung volumes change. Pretty much any physiological system that, that has any kind of a gravicentric response to it changes. And, and that's most systems, by the way. So uh, it was very very interesting for me to experience that firsthand and to, to see subjectively and objectively uh, what my own parameters were. Well, there's two questions Matt and I are dying to ask you. The first <laughs> is we want to know about how you handle resistance exercises in a zero-gravity field. We were talking about that because, you know, we, we both like to work out. And second of all, the question we're dying to is how do you handle hygiene up there and privacy? And do you, you know, On that's it. I'll stop crew, right yeah. there. In a six-man crew. <laughs> how do you handle hygiene matters? We'll, we'll put it politely. Two questions. Okay. Well, both are easy, and I'll try to summarize. Um, with uh, resistive exercise, we have now uh, really, for the first time in, in the history of spaceflight, a machine that allows us the big axial loads that we've wanted for, for many years. Uh, these are loads that we think will help to preserve the bone and muscle uh, that we tend to lose up there. Typically, you'll lose between 1% and 1.5% of the bone mineral density per month in your lumbar spine, uh, your pelvis, your hip. Uh, greater trochanter and femoral neck. So uh, what we have now, which we call the advanced resistance 
digestive exercise device, or ARED, because NASA loves acronyms even more than medicine, uh, <laughs> is a device that will allow us axial loading up to 600 pounds. So we can do heavy squats, heel raises, uh, deadlifts, uh, core exercises that essentially target those postural joints and bones that, uh, that tend to lose the most uh, bone density. Now, those loads may seem like a lot, and I was up to 500-plus pound uh, heel raises, Ooh. but you got to remember that on the ground, you're lifting all of your body weight above your ankles. Right. And, uh, you know, up there, you weigh nothing. So all of that load comes from that machine that you dial in there. So that's, the numbers seem a little inflated. So we exercise a couple hours a day, uh, both aerobic and those resistive exercises we do, and that works out very well. Uh, for hygiene. And how do you, you shower know, we, after you work out, right? <laughs> well, the simple answer is you don't. Yeah, you don't. Um, <laughs> yeah, shower is also very uh, gravity-centric. Uh, we essentially sponge bath up there, and uh, water is a precious commodity. We do recycle everything, and uh, so it's not like you'd lose it, but uh, we want to process as little as possible. So after cooling off from exercise, uh, you just go to a little hygiene station, which to us uh, doubles as our, our little uh, cabin for the bathroom, and uh, we sponge off, and we use no more than 100, 150 mils of water per day to uh, bathe ourselves and to wash our hair and uh, just then go on about our business after that. And you stay amazingly clean up there. So uh, hygiene was surprisingly not a problem. Huh. And what about uh, privacy issues? Because I imagine a lot of things that we take for granted, all the physical exams, uh, the elements of working out, the hygiene. I mean, we, we don't even think about uh, having our own kind of private place to take care of some of these things. And that must have all been removed to some extent with a six-person crew at least. Well, believe it or not, the station is so big that, uh, I mean, everybody can almost have their own module, and wow. everybody does have their own sleep station, something a uh, little smaller than an old phone booth, if people remember what those look like. <laughs> uh, there's there's uh, no problem finding privacy, and it, it's possible to go for hours without seeing one or two of your crewmates, quite frankly, because your workload tends to distribute you to uh, other places the station. If you were to compare us with a submarine, for instance, we have much more volume per man than, say, an attack submarine would have. And uh, so privacy is really not too much of an issue for us. All right. Well, listen, we know the space station program costs a lot of money. And are, are we seeing any real medical breakthroughs and in information that make it worth that cost, maybe besides Tang and Fisher space pens? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure I put either of those in the medical <laughs> category. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of things. So, you know, the, the medical aspects of, of spaceflight are, are primarily supportive. What do we need to know to support the overall effort of human spaceflight? And, and there's many reasons to do that. Having said that, it, it gives us a venue to study physiology uh, isolated from the effects of gravity uh, in, in ways that we could never do on the ground. And, and uh, what's tangible, you, you have to put in the form of basic research and decide yourself how useful it is. Uh, a couple of examples. We, we expected um, central venous pressure to increase in zero gravity, just like it does in bed rest or head down tilt. We found the opposite is true because there's physiologic mechanisms we didn't understand, uh, probably due to pericardial constraint and increased thoracic diameter, but, but we're not really sure. Uh, we expected the um, uh, ventilation perfusion regionality and lung volumes to diminish or, or disappear in zero gravity. We expected that to go away because we thought it was all gravicentric. Uh, we found 
That's not true. There are regulatory mechanisms in the lung that we don't understand that still, for some reason, allow for some regionality. Uh, there's aspects of sodium metabolism, and in particular storage in zero gravity, that we don't understand at all. So essentially, there's a lot of basic physiologic questions and principles that are only coming to light because of our ability to isolate the effect of gravity and study these effects uh, in zero gravity on the space station. So, um, you know, what price for basic research? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, rewriting Guyton's textbook of physiology for zero gravity will be an extremely valuable thing for us as we, you know, continue further uh, off the planet and expand outward. And, uh, again, it's hard to put a price directly on that. I think it's, it's interesting. It's like taking the fish out of the water so you can study that fish outside of its environment. To a point, it's, it's like that's a little more comfortable for us than a fish out of water. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially uh, if we were to use your coined term, the space-evolved man, Cosmopithecus. I mean, essentially, it sounds <laughs> oh, like that, huh? <laughs> we're on a trend. You know, in 200 days, you essentially evolved. You adapted in a, in a really remarkable way in space. So kudos to you. <laughs> are you going to go back? Well, uh, ironic, uh, you should ask. Uh, can I was we go, actually assigned... Can we go with you? <laughs> I'll see if I can find space. <laughs> I, I was actually assigned to another mission before I landed, and uh, the shuttle mission, STS-133, supposedly uh, launching in September. If things go on schedule, I'll, I'll be aboard that. That'll be a short mission, and uh, if I could potentially get in line for another long-duration flight after that, I would certainly do so. Well, thank you. Hold our places for us. And our, <laughs> thank do. you. Our guest today has been NASA astronaut and expert in space medicine, Dr. Michael Barrett. Michael, thank you for being our, our special guest on Second Opinion Live here on Reach It's MD. a pleasure. Okay, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Take care, Michael. I hope he reserves uh, uh, some phone time for us when he's back up in space. We'd like to talk to him on the Well, I think so. Do you want to go into space? People you know, have been calling you a space cadet for years. They have, they have, although my fear of uh, heights wouldn't lend towards a very good uh, space journey for me, I think. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm afraid I would just be, you know, the, the, the emesis, I would just, that'd be my entire trip. It'd be. <laughs> they'd be cleaning my spacesuit out and wiping stuff I'd off. I'd lose a remarkable amount of weight if I had any to lose. Before we get to the ReachMD forum today, let's answer that interesting question we posed earlier in the show about smoking rates. So put your cigarette out, Matt, and answer. Have U.S. smoking rates declined? leveled or increased since 1998? Uh, we warned you it might be a bit of a trick question, and it turns out the rates did all three in 10 years. And I don't mean oscillating back and forth. They declined for, for the first six years, then stalled for three. And now the CDC reports an increase in the past year with almost one in five Americans smoking. Now, is that a blip or a trend? It's hard to know, but it is safe to say that the campaign has plateaued. And it is necessary for us to do more work on our anti-smoking campaigns in America. That's yeah, a good message to us to get a little right. more proactive. Yes, and now on to the ReachMD forum, Matt. This week we don't have an answer, but we're raising the question of what physicians are expected to advise patients concerning mammogram screening. Unless you've been stuck in space orbit... Uh, for the past 200 days, you've heard that the United States government's 16-member Preventative Service Task Force has new recommendations that counter the long-standing guidelines for women ages 40 and over to have annual mammograms. And we should clarify, uh, when we talk about this task force, which was made up largely of primary care physicians, whether you find that significant or not is your call, they suggested that women ages 40 to 49 with no family history or predisposition for breast cancer should no longer undergo in routine mammography. Now, they did acknowledge that screening in this age group reduced breast cancer rates by 15%, but they said that false uh, positives and overdiagnosis lead to unnecessary and costly biopsies and additional imaging tests. And so I think the way they like to put it for statistics was, per 1,000 women screened at 40, 
uh, 0.7 deaths were prevented, but 470 additional women get false positive uh, test reads, and 33 more get unneeded biopsies. Okay, well, Matt, this is where evidence-based medicine statistics really start to bother me, mm -hmm. because you take, run that up to 10,000 women, which is not a lot of people, you get seven deaths, as compared to 300 people getting unnecessary biopsies. So, you know, you have to, we have to look at these numbers really hard. I mean, we look at numbers, we're forgetting people. And, yeah. and, and what are those seven deaths worth to you? Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> I know, and we, and we keep running it down every, every week, we, every show, we get these evidence-based studies that show that the life expectancy is worth so many hundreds of thousands for this medication or that. And I think we're turning too much toward dollars and too, too little toward people. And the, what's the value of seven people? Mm -hmm. Well, what that's it, a big question here. I mean, was this study designed more to improve health or ration health care costs? And we have to consider the timing here. It couldn't be worse for PR from the public uh, that they would introduce this now in the time when everybody's concerned and suspicious, even paranoid, of uh, health care rationing. Well, interestingly enough, just yesterday what I read that uh, in the Senate that's working on the new health care bill, um, Senators Barbara Mikulski uh, and Olympia Snow have an amendment added that says that the Health and Human Service Secretary is authorized to require health plans to cover additional preventative services for women. And uh, this is uh, just in response to this study, is according to this article. And that's, you know, that's good. I mean, we, the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds is, you know, geez, is this going to have a major impact in coverage for mammograms in patients uh, who are under 50 years of age? I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, even if the HHS secretary uh, says that, that uh, Medicaid, Medicare services are not going to change their coverage, maybe a lot of other private companies will. And so now a lot of people are scared. You know? Well, we're, we're talking about rationing here. We're, talking that we're, we're triggering the fear and the, and the little flame starting inside of people that this is the start of rationing. And we've been talking about changing PSAs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like getting PSAs every year. I, and that's just my personal bias. It has nothing to do yeah. with any evidence-based study that I've done. But uh, these things need to be looked at very, very carefully. A, we're scaring people, and B, what are we looking at? Well, Don't. do you, th you think it's a trend? I mean, we're looking at um, uh, another task force that looked at um, uh, looking at relaxing the guidelines for pap smears, um, and that's that's coming right on the heels of, of this. It got none of the attention that uh, that the mammography uh, change in recommendations got, but still. Now, I have to look at the other side. When I was new in practice here in Illinois, we had to do HIV premarital tests on everybody, and we were targeting the wrong population and spending millions of dollars in tests that weren't really get, getting any positives back on people. So uh, once again, this is a hot topic and one that we're going to hear about again, and we'll be probably <laughs> We'll be coming show. right back to this. We'll, yeah. be, we'll be back to this, <laughs> absolutely. But it's something we all need to think about in not just pap smears and not just mammograms. Well, I think that about does it for us here on Second Opinion Live. We've got to run because Michael is trying to get a locum tenens appointment aboard a space shuttle mission. Reach MD in space. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Burnham. And Matt has now changed into his Luke Skywalker costume. For more about Second Opinion Live on Reach MD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can also follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMD XM160. And remember, four out of five doctors in space listen to ReachMD.